Right, guys, welcome back to Adam Peter Fitness Podcast. Today, today I have um, somebody who is also in the same role as Eric Helms. He is a repeat uh, guest on the podcast. I have none other than Steve Denovi from uh, PR's per- performance. Um, Steve coaches Sean Noriega, also a ton of other um, powerlifters who have to be at nationals and um, has a lot of really, just really good, great free information. He's also a co-host of Two White Lights, which is a fantastic powerlifting podcast. I find it very entertaining and I am a frequent listener of it. Um, and uh, today we're just kind of just, just going to talk about a few powerlifting topics that I think would be a little bit helpful to um, the viewers since Steve has a unique perspective and I've always appreciated his more in-depth analysis of topics. So uh, I guess, uh, Steve, do you have anything else you'd like to say about yourself? I, I just appreciate the long intro because as you saw at right when you started, I took a drink and I choked. <laughs> if you would have introduced me anytime soon, I was gonna yeah, be well, I, was say, I, I, I did deserve <laughs> that. So I was like, let's, um, let's let's say more 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 nice things um about, about Steve. So, well, perfect. I oh, I also, appreciate the attentiveness and the the ability to uh to uh uh move on the fly on the podcast and be able to adjust. So uh rapping on the podcast, as as yeah. one would say. So but yeah, I, I think you did a good, I don't really have anything else to say. I mean, uh, since I've been on before, we don't need, I think we kind of went through my background then. So whatever you have questions with, let's roll into it and, and get into, um, some fun nuanced topics. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I think the first thing I wanted to, to go over was, um, I guess programming variations for self-limiting versus like technique improvements. Um, because I, I do think that this is something like usually when I am for programming or when I think when a lot of lifters do get variations, um, I think that understanding why their coach gave them that variation is something that can be really helpful. Um, so for the listeners that aren't aware, you know, say we have the lifter has a chest fall pattern in the, the squat, you know, uh, one of the best variations in my opinion is a pause squat to help um, to teach that. Um, or another reason why you might program in a pause squat is on a, say a secondary squat day to self limit the load and reduce, I guess, fatigue relative to the stimulus. So um, I want to ask Steve, in what context would you give a lifter like a variation for like a self-limiting or a technical purpose? Or is there another reason entirely why you might program a certain variation for a lifter? Oh, really? You just nailed the two reasons on the head. It's going to be either for some type of self-constraint technique improvement, because a lot of times you can, you can, you can cue an athlete so much, but not everyone responds well to internal or external cueing. Honestly, most people do better with just having a way to feel what that, that technique changes or how they're supposed to control their center of mass. So a lot of times we're using variations because that's going to make it a lot easier to just kind of force that variation to put them in position. But at the same time, almost all variations are self-limiting. Like very few people are stronger at a safety bar pause squat than they are comp squatting or a tempo bench than they are at regular bench. I mean, there, there's, so you have to understand the reasons why, and it, it could be both. There could be, a, there could be times you're programming a pause squat because you want to self-limit and you want to be able to adjust um, some type of technique variable. But within that, like you said, you, you want to be strategic on why you're doing it. Um, I mean, if you're putting a, I'm going to use pause squat. I'm just going to keep saying that as my, if you're putting a pause squat on the primary day, because you want to work on technique, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if that makes sense because why would you want to use your primary day to be your technique focused day? That likely might be a better time to be able to put that on a secondary day or a tertiary day. 
But if you're wanting to not only work on technique, but also self-limit that primary day in some manner, that might be a really good option there. I'm not saying I would probably, I would never, ever put a, a variation to help technique on a primary day. Maybe I'm doing that in the sense of like, I feel like they need to work on something on heavier loads. But for the most part, if you're wanting to adjust technique, a lot of times that's going to be better suited on like a secondary or tertiary day. Um, where a primary day, I would say more often than not, I might actually, that's, that's where I'm going to self-limit that or a secondary day. I might, I might self-limit a primary day because we're doing what we'll call it like an off-season block. I don't, I, we just came off of a meat prep and I do not want to induce as much stress. So we're going to do a little bit more volume, or I might put it on a secondary day because I want to self-limit that day to make sure we can come back around to that primary day and be well-rested as much as we need to and well-recovered, um, but still be able to push kind of relative RPEs there. So that, that there's so there, I could probably go on for an hour on different variables that you can kind of play in there. But the biggest thing is just a coach understanding why they put that there um, and having a reasoning behind it. Yeah. I, I think that if you go on to um, your YouTube channel, you look over your top three favorite very variations. Um, you know, I think that that's a really good overview of a lot of, for a lot of people, essentially like, why you might program in a certain variation and why, you know, something might be, be seen a little bit more often. Um, just going off of that, um, but you said about, you know, maybe you might put, put on a, you know, a pause on primary day uh, and, and also you're trying to accumulate more volume. Um, and my training approach, when I'm doing more of a volume block with uh, like my coach, Eric Bodvern, and I have found out I'm actually better at safety bar squat than I am at comp squat. I'm, I'm weird. Um, and we have been just you and you and Garrett, you're kind of built like Garrett fear. So I can see that a little bit like you and Garrett fear the two, the two safety bar world record holders then. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he could probably squat like 800 pounds on that thing, but I, uh, we'll put safety bar, bar squat on my secondary day because I can push it pretty hard. And then we'll also put like a pause squat on like my primary day, just because it helps me like this spot is just super fatiguing for me. It also just helps manage that fatigue and let me push other uh, accessories. <laughs> um, a lot more. So I guess just going, going, going off of that, what are the variations that you find yourself programming most frequently for lifters on the squat bench, press and deadlift? Uh, squat, uh, pause squats and SSB and high bar. Um, I mean, I'm not getting too crazy here. I'm not, uh, it's, it's pretty simple, but I'm programming pause squats because I, for a couple of reasons outside of the self-loading, I'm going to ignore the self-loading aspect because every variation barring your, a special flower and SSB more than your comp squat is usually going to be self-limiting. Um, pause squats, I think do a really good job of helping someone manage their center of mass, as well as it helps them to control their descent. Um, a lot of people who maybe dive bomb their squat, um, a pause squat's going to help to kind of keep that accountable because it's not very fun to have to decelerate super fast if you're just dive bombing into a pause squat, but it's even, you're not going to tempo it likely, which that's where I, I don't, I like tempo squats, but not as much because the descent speed is so much different than your comp squat that I think the specificity has too much of a range where when people come back to comp squatting, they have to kind of like relearn how to comp squat where I feel like the actual descent speed most people use on a pause squat is very transferable immediately over to their regular comp squat and they can switch back and forth. No problem. Um, SSB, um, because there might not be a better movement that helps to constrain technique correctly. Like you can put pretty much, I mean, when I used to personal train, um, I rarely ever had people barbell squat. I just have them safety bar squat for general population because of the way it kind of helps to manage the rib cage position, which then leaks into the pelvic position and all and managing your center of mass since it kind of counterbalances and it has a little bit of this, that, that weight distribution forward. It helps you to counterbalance back. So most people you can put under a safety bar and they're going to squat like beautifully. 
um, it, it'll, it'll really help them to kind of manage all of like the technique things you're wanting to do, um, as well as the fact that in some manner, it can kind of challenge certain things differently. Um, it challenges like upper back strength a little bit more. Um, it also, if someone has some type of, I'll call it like a shift or some type of issue dealing with pelvic orientation that is causing some type of pain, um, where maybe they're distributing load unevenly due to like a shift or they're anteriorly rotated and it's causing some type of hip flexor pain. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that interior rotation or hip, uh, hip shift causes pain. I'm saying uh, the instance that it can get, get them under an SSB and you'll likely see them have no shift and they'll manage their pelvic orientation and they won't have any pain. So a lot of people can just handle more volume by doing safety bar. And kind of the same thing goes for, for high bar. High bar is pretty darn close to a low bar squat. People try and make them seem too different, but they're really not. They're the same thing. It's just, it's like two inches difference in bar placement and, uh, I don't know if all women would say two inches don't matter, but two inches isn't that much of a difference. So um, it's just a slight change in knee flexion to hip angle. So I really like high bar squat because it takes away the aspect of shoulder mobility um, because that's really what complicates the low bar squat um, is someone's shoulder mobility and or just their general size. If you got a big dude who's 275 pounds, it's going to challenge their shoulder mobility, not because they lack shoulder mobility, just because they're so freaking thick that they got to reach so far back that it's just tough. So a high bar squat just makes a squat simpler. Um, so, and, and both of those safety bar and high bar, um, are great. If you got someone who's overthinking and you want them to be a little bit more mindless and not have to overcue them because it just, it just simplifies the movement, um, for bench press, I really like tempo bench for, uh, unlike squat, where I think it really doesn't transfer as well because the descent speed is so different. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, benefit from tempo benching, especially with, I think both of how we coach bench is, is more, I'll call it the USAPL style. If, if that helps people understand is, is more of a softer touch, higher, like not everyone's gonna have a high arch, but promoting a higher arch, higher rib cage, leg drive position versus more of the sink heels up, um, and, and less kind of leg drive, uh, constant leg drive position. Um, Tempo really helps with that control and helps to self-organize someone to kind of manage what the center of mass is in the bench press. Because center of mass in the bench press is a little bit different because it changes throughout the movement um, based on the shoulder and elbow position. Um, so I really like tempo bench for that reason. I think it really helps to self-organize technique. Um, and honestly, for most people in that one to three rep range, their strength isn't that different once they get used to it. Most people will be surprised that they probably can tempo bench pretty darn close to what they could actually competition bench in that one to three rep range. It's more once you get like four plus, which I don't program tempo bench as much, especially like five plus, because then it becomes almost too self-limiting because you're just so much time under tension. It just becomes infinitely harder. Um, I really like Larson just for the reason, honestly, it's probably more self-limiting, but uh, probably the, the reason technically is uh, sometimes people almost over rely on leg drive. They think leg drive will take care of every aspect of their positioning, which isn't terribly incorrect, but they forget that their upper back extensors do play a role in kind of maintaining that back and shoulder position. So Larson is, since you don't have leg drive to be able to take, basically keep accountable position and, and that rib cage orientation, you've got to rely a little bit more on those thoracic and lower, uh, low back extensors to kind of hold that position. And so that kind of helps to teach people to kind of make sure they use their legs and their upper body. So, um, and then deadlift, uh, I, probably deadlift is the one I do the least amount of variation on. And it's really only two, um, so, uh, pause deadlift and RDLs. And it's going to be dependent on the lifter, if they're conventional or sumo, if you're sumo, maybe I'm going to do some conventional deadlifting. If you're a conventional deadlift from, I'm, I'm usually not going to do any sumo. I don't think it helps, but, um, I find myself even with sumo pullers, not really doing much conventional lately. And the reason why is, is with RDLs, um, 
they're great in obviously teaching the hinge and working on the hinge based pattern and the musculature there. If we're doing sumo deadlift, we're so far into that position of like almost like a half squat that a conventional deadlift is, it's still using some of the same musculature where I feel like a, uh, an RDL is enough far the opposite way that we're targeting exactly what we don't do enough on, on sumo. Um, Chance Mitchell, I was on his podcast and he talked about his magic exercise, the 45 degree hypers. And the first thing I said is, well, did you do any hinge base work before? And he's like, no, I was like, okay, well, that's why 45 degree hypers were magical. I, I love 45 degree hypers. I think they're amazing. They're one of my favorite movements, but they were magical because he did no hinge base work. And I don't think conventional deadlift would have the same transfers doing a 45 degree hyper or RDLs because that was so specific to working on what you do not work on enough on the squat and the sumo deadlift pattern. Um, Can I say something and about for post with like yeah in general. Um, I've actually found that like the more often I've been, been programming and for myself and looking around, um, I think deadlift is actually one of those really weird lifts where it seems to benefit a lot more from that. Just in general, that hypertrophy work of the posterior chain, and especially because powerlifters like usually they're doing their back accessories, but usually you know there's not there's a very not there's usually there's not a lot of hinging. There's not really any sort of knee flexion based movements. And I've found that for my lifters, um, if I give them a little bit more of that work on their posterior chain, it starts to grow a little, little bit. Um, and maybe slightly lower down, lower down their deadlift volume um, to accommodate for, for that. Once we come back to pushing the deadlift volume a little bit, bit more, they tend to always have just an easier time throughout the entire range of, range of motion. Um, and especially because, you know, most powerlifters don't know how to hinge. And so mm -hmm. teaching them how to hinge and load their hips and, and, you know, wedge into the barrel through your heels, which we have another really good post about, um, is going to help them be able to, um, just have more strength and be less limited by their, their technique and their musculature. Because I think a lot of times, um, this is a question I want to ask after this beginner lifters focus too much on being hyper-specific when that's a little bit more appropriate when you're advanced in my opinion. Um, and mostly just building that muscle in general is what's going to get you stronger. Yeah. Uh, agree with all of that. I'll go back to the first point. Um, especially with like sumo sumo, the, one of the best ways to build your sumo is to squat and to RDL. If you kind of do that, it's kind of a mixture of a sumo deadlift and kind of does a lot of the musculature build, or like a belt squat, like doing a belt, anything like hypertrophy leg wise kind of takes care of it to where like, that's where I have gotten away from doing conventional, like conventional is more fatigue inducing. Um, if you're going to lift more tonnage, so therefore there's more fatigue induced. If I can do something that's a little bit more self-limiting, like an RDL then I don't induce as much fatigue, but I get basically the same benefit I'm looking for. And then going to the conventional deadlift, uh, I, I think it gets benefit from doing RDLs for the reason, again, the self-limiting aspect is like, maybe you can only conventional deadlift so much before kind of this tipping point of recovery where maybe we can get more RDL work and then we can get more squat work. And it builds a lot of the same musculature, what's going on in the conventional deadlift. So, um, and then going to pause deadlift, um, basically the reasoning there is I think that's just the best way to help people, uh, constrain people to being more patient, uh, with positioning and whatnot. Um, it, I mean, the biggest issue with most people on deadlift is their setup. Um, if you get your setup, right, once you lift it, you're good. The, the actual lift is not technical because the setup is what sets up the spring of what's going to happen once you lift the bar. So I like pause deadlifts because they really help to kind of keep people accountable to the positioning aspects we want to. Um, the only thing you gotta watch out for some people get over scoopy when they pause because they almost get to the point where they just start getting impatient with it and they start just trying to kind of pop it off the floor and then that starts creating the negative aspect of what you want is they kind of start trying to scoop it up into a pause versus like in sense of slack pull wedge create tension then lift pause and then continue to lift so um 
there's one thing you talk oh if anyone's listening and they are not 100% sure they know how to hinge, like definitively, you can say, I know how to hinge. You probably don't because yes, what you said, Adam is correct. So many powerlifters do not know how to hinge. Um, and I find that almost to be even worse with sumo deadlifters because since they sumo, there's not as much of a hinge aspect. And so they kind of ignore that We're conventional. It's pretty hard to get away with not knowing how to hinge. Like it's going to be pretty darn obvious that your deadlift just doesn't look as good. Uh, I find a lot of sumo deadlifters do not know how to hinge. So therefore an RDL, I, I can, instead of teaching them how to hinge, like in the sense of like within the sumo, I just have them RDL. And then all of a sudden I see their sumo being more hingy in a good way. So, um, but yeah, I think that answers the the three que the questions of squat bench deadlift, my favorite variations and kind of why. Yeah. I, I think that's um, all really uh, good because essentially it, it, there's usually not only just, there's not just one reason for, you know, why, you know, why you might have a variation. There's lots of different contexts to the individual um, lifters and their own unique goals and um, how what they respond best to. I guess I want to ask you, um, do you find that there are some variations for some lifters that just tend to like, if you do like say in the typical combination, like a sumo deadlift is like pause dead sumo deadlift and then sumo deadlift. Like, do you find that like, there's like for some lifters, like that magic combination of variation with, with the competition specificity, or do you find that that's really, it's more so just a dosage of like stress and managing the, the, the stress or more so like a combination of, Oh, I have technique reinforced on one day. And then, you know, I have better technique on my primary day and then I'm stronger there. I think there's definitely for some lifters, like a magical setup with variations. Um, and that could be an aspect of maintaining technique, or that could be an aspect of self-limiting. There are lifters that I will run a variation all the way into the meet. Maybe it's safety bar because on their secondary day, because we have to self-limit their secondary day on squats. Um, maybe it's like you brought up Sean Noriega, Sean Noriega for, I don't know how long, way before I even ever coached him, always one of his days is pause deadlifts. Cause if he doesn't do pause deadlifts, he uh, starts to have technique regression. And one thing I think people don't know as well, he actually has a third deadlift day kind of in sense on his third deadlift day, he does one to two sets of RDLs and they're not hard. They're like four to five RPE. Like I actually programmed them four to five RPE. They have, they have no, they have no purpose in the sense of like trying to build anything. Like we do other things for that. Like we do hyper extensions that we actually want more musculature building. Um, it's simply because if he doesn't do that, he starts to regress on his hinging. Um, I have, uh, Dimitri Thayton who just got second at nationals. Uh, here's another way, again, another way that you can be able to do variations on her primary day. Her top set is always a comp squat. All of her back off work is pause squats. If I do not have her do pause squats on her primary day, we see, we immediately will see technique regression in her managing her center mass. She'll start to really kind of shift forward and get hip shooty out of the hole. And so I put pause squats as her back off work on her primary day to, I mean, one in sense that's that kind of self limits, but the fact is her pause squats almost as strong as her comp squats. So it's not really the reason it's simply because something about that, uh, we took it out one time and within a block, her technique just completely went to crap. It was, well, it was all over my, the place. My question with that is, is she well leveraged for, for squat or is she not well leveraged for squat? Uh, I would say in between, she's not like born to squat, but she's definitely not, uh, uh, disadvantage to it. So, okay. So um, what I was going with that is like, do you, because like I've seen usually more variation tends to do better for people that aren't as well built for a lift just because they have to think about more things while they're doing the lift. Um, like for example, like with my squat, I'm, I'm not well leveraged for it. My femurs are, I have ostrich legs. Um, it's like a temple squat, like no, like no matter what. 
And um, if I'm not doing pause squats, I actually like, I see like a technique um, regression, whereas on deadlift, I just deadlift. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm, I'm built well for. I don't really need to think about, I don't really need variations. It just comes naturally to, to, to me. Um, so is that something that you've seen in the, with lifters or is that um, kind of unique to, to me and to myself? I think that's very true. But again, like I said, I, I just gave two examples of people who are decent, like Sean's definitely decently leveraged for deadlift, yeah. but there's just something about some type of variations that kind of help to keep uh, a technique accountable and constrained. Um, so yeah, I think it can go so many ways. That's where, that's why this conversation could be at never ending because there's so many, like every lifter, there could be a reason why that's different from the next person, which is different from the next person. But I do agree that like people who are not well leveraged for squat for multiple reasons, either one for the, the technique accountability or two for the self-limiting aspect, because they can just only handle so much squatting, um, variations can be great. But at the same time, there's some, I, I have one lady who is, who is not very, uh, proportioned well for squat. She's not bad, but not proportioned well um i only have her competition squat ever no variations maybe pause squats occasionally no high bar no safety bar because if i do have her do anything other than the comp squat it leaks too much into the comp squat and she starts changing her comp squat technique and that's why i said i could i could go through all 35 of my athletes and probably have differing examples of why i do things um and it just depends on the person you, you, for everyone that like you say, Oh, I could probably apply this to everyone. You realize, no, I've actually got someone who goes against the grain on this. So that's where you, you just got to be very mindful of just following what you see. Like if, if, if you love it, don't get too attached to anything, but also know why each thing is a, is a tool that you can use. Uh, I, I just think this is a, like a really, like I said, it's kind of a rabbit hole discussion that you, you could, you could get like, like a really cool, like, you know, podcast, you know, idea of basically be getting like, you know, say like, the top powerlifting coaches on one show on one podcast, like discussing like variations, like why, like why they would, they would use them. Because I do think that, you know, there's so many different reasons. There's so many different like applications of this. Um, but ultimately I, I think it, it comes, comes down to, and Mike just here talks about this, like paying attention to your own individual re response, what seems to work well for you from a daily setup. Um, and like you said, um, be willing to experiment with, you know, how specific that, that you are, because sometimes those variations, um, you know, like you said, you'll keep them in all the way to, to the meat. You don't have to always get more competition um, specific on, on your, your variations. Um, yeah. So I guess second topic is piecing your progression as a lifter during a training block. And I think this is really important because if you essentially don't give yourself that room to make progress, you're not going to make progress. Um, and I have observed that, and some people seem to be able to, um, have, I think it's more related to the repeated bout effect of a new block or what, or whatnot. They kind of build up that momentum a little bit, bit faster Whereas some lifters, they just don't, they, they need to have like more of the half RPE increase for a couple of weeks and then they have a certain, um, bout of progress. Um, so I guess, how do you recommend that your athletes do pace progression or, um, in general, and like, like also like peak intensities, like that you program for athletes. So you nail it on the head with how I theorize it is people have differing rates of the repeat about effect. And people also will be differing based off of individual systems. I, I could coach one person and they go to someone else and the, the block length is going to be completely different. Not that completely, but maybe it's like a week or so different because of, of, of styles of coaches. But um, I definitely believe like almost all my athletes, I find 
eventually a, a certain progression rate and block length that works best for them. And one, it goes like, how quickly can they adapt to the new stimulus? And some people take a little bit longer. And like, if you try and put intensity in there too often or too soon, they get really, really bogged down. They kind of need two fairly easy weeks before then kind of doing a, a larger ramp up where then you have the opposite. Some people do really good with just kind of going heavy from the get go and they're going to do shorter block lengths. And, and, and my, I think how I probably describe if I was going to try and stereotype the lifter, if someone one tends to be more of a volume sponge. They tend to need more time uh, to kind of adapt to intensities. And they, most of my volume sponge lifters need longer drawn out blocks. My, li my lifters who don't do as well with volume and do better with intensity based stuff, whether it's lower reps and or like higher RPEs on average, they tend to do better with shorter block lengths uh, because it, they're going to get detrained too fast for low RPE work, but they also aren't going to be able to sustain seven to eight to nine RPE work for five weeks on end usually. So if I had to pigeonhole it, I would say that's kind of what I've seen is, is more of my volume sponges tend to like more pro tend to respond better to prolonged block lengths um, versus the opposite. I mean, there's also things that you might play into with uh, people who are injury prone and maybe you're going to be a little bit more proactive with deloading just to kind of be on the safe side. But I would say for the most part, um, you're looking at kind of seeing like what is that initial period that they need for that repeated about effect adaptation before you can start ramping up and, and I think everyone I coach is somewhere between three to five weeks in block length and then maybe a deload after. Um, and then it just kind of depends within that. I, I typically find me personally, if someone can go more than five weeks on a training block, I probably am not putting enough stress within those five weeks. That's my personal opinion, because at that point, like if they can continue to go, like how much longer are they actually getting much from the stimulus versus they can just go because there's not actually enough stress to create adaptations or fatigue. And so that's my point. They're like, I, I don't think most people need longer than three to five weeks of a certain stimulus to get the adaptation. It's if it's within that, if they can keep going, it's more of like, I wasn't producing enough stress within those three to five weeks to actually warrant that there was an adaptation to begin with. So I guess when you were, so if you, that was the case with one of your lifters, how much would you increase volume uh, or would you more so leverage intensity um, with the stress? A uh, little bit of both. It depends on the person. Um, I usually, I would say on average, I don't adjust volume much. Like if they're doing a certain amount of sets and reps, that's going to be static week to week. Um, I more like to adjust intensity, but I definitely have people that I might do a little less volume on week one. Um, and even week two, because they just do better with that. Um, it, that, that I find that a little bit harder to pigeonhole and kind of stereotype. That's just kind of independent on the person. Um, because I have some people that I definitely would not have thought that we need to do that, but they just seem to do well with kind of lower volume. And then once we ramp up intensity and or volume, they seem to get beat up either way. So we just need to kind of have low, uh, low uh, occurrences of that total in the block. And so I guess, I guess um, going back to my better asking the pacing, the, the, the progression, um, I guess this is more of a question of static RPE, such as, you know, top set at eight, top set at eight, top set at eight you know, and then you, you add weight or would you, or do you prefer doing more of the, you know, say start like RPE five to six, then go to like, you know, a, a top set of, of, of nine or peak intensity nine. Um, do you, which way do you prefer to program? Because I know that, uh, oh, go, go ahead. I heavily prefer the progressive RPE because I don't think anyone who gets eight RPE every single week actually does eight RPE every single week. And I've talked to multiple coaches who maybe used to do that and they've all changed because they realized none of their athletes were actually doing eight RPE week one, eight RPE week two. It, they were all sandbagging a little bit on week one and then jumping a little bit week two. Actually, what you, you find is that athletes will start tailoring the progression rate when you do that. 
um, they'll kind of figure out, they'll know that they can't go eight RPE week one. And you'll see that some athletes will go maybe seven RPE and they'll go seven and a half and then eight and then eight and a half on week four, I mean, four week block. And then that's the athlete that kind of like self organizes their training into knowing you do half RPE jumps, even though you put eight RPE every single day, you'll have other athletes who really sandbag who go like five or six week one, six or seven week two, seven or eight week three, eight or nine week four. And they just self-organize knowing that they need bigger jumps. And so that's why I actually think that system can work, but it's only working because the athlete ends up self-organizing it, not because they should do eight RPE every single week. And so I don't do that because I'm just going to, I'm just going to find out what their actual rate of progression is. But I've talked to a lot of coaches who used to do that. And then what they just find is this athlete self-organizing in the first place. I think you see that with a lot of, I mean, even, even going on Instagram, I'm not going to name coaches, but I think we can think of coaches that do something like that. And we know for a fact, their athletes do not go crazy week one. They're all YOLOing week four and they kind of sandbag week one and build up. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, I, I also, uh, Mike Israel has talked about this topic. He also says it kind of just organizes into actually having overload because say somebody does, you know, it's kind of hard to know, was this actually RPE eight from, from week one, like what you, what you said, and then, you know, trying to you know be like, Oh, I added five pounds. And then, you know, maybe you just psychologically thought that was harder because, you know, you added five pounds, um, having that progression there probably also allows for like, my argument is that if you start at lower RPE, especially because of some of the research, you know, like dad, like the dad and strength, strength guys to talk about, about this. Um, like the fatigue relative to the, the stimulus tends to be a little bit better. And then as that fatigue rises, we, the threshold for stimulus probably does rise as, as well. And so increasing like the, the, the RPE probably really makes sense. So then you are still having that fitness outpace that fatigue or, you know, having that, like that overload threshold always be, be met, um, to some of a maximum adaptive extent, extent. Um, so how often do you program in like at nines or do you ever program in at 10 RBEs? So one thing I'll say of what you said there, I don't know who coined it. Uh, adaptation precedes overload. And that's basically what you're saying is like, you have to adapt to the stimulus before you overload it, which is why I just don't think even if you do eight RPE, it's not a good eight RPE on week one. Like you're not allowing those adaptations yet to take place to actually then overload. Um, I do program. I never program a 10. Really. I don't think I ever program a 10 because honestly, the reason why I'm not going to program a 10 is if you program an RPE nine for most lifters, that means a 10, <laughs> that probably means a 10. Um, if you program a, yeah, if you program a 10, I just think there's probably a high risk of the athlete missing. Like they're, they're gonna, they're gonna, I don't know. I just, I just don't program a 10 because I know a nine means they're probably going to push it. Like RPE nine rarely ever means for most people that they're actually going to leave one rep left in the tank. It usually means more a nine and a half RPE, or they're going to do an all out grinder. So I'll do nine RPE stuff. I'll usually, I usually actually don't program at nine. I'll program at eight to nine because that helps to kind of stray them away. The thinking 10 is actually a possibility. I, I give them a range with an eight to nine RPE because uh, if, if there it's an eight and it's better than I thought it would move. And I thought it was gonna be a nine. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I'll do that depending on the lifter. Cause some lifters tend to, uh, how I put it, some lifters, if you give them an eight RPE on week four, they're going to go nine anyways. And so they're going to do it. Like they're just going to do it. And at a certain point as a coach, it's not always about like having to do what you want to do. It's about kind of self-organizing the training to what the athlete's going to do anyways. So if you know, they're just going to do a nine RPE on week four, but you know, you're deloading the next week, reward them. Maybe that's enjoyable for them. Maybe that really psychologically motivates them throughout the block that they know they can kind of semi YOLO a lift at the end of the block. And so, but you know, you're going to deload after, so we can dissipate fatigue, but if they're going to do that, well, now I'm going to organize the training from weeks one to three to plan for that. 
Like I'm not going to give them eight RPE on week two when I know that that's already going to be hard and they're not going to have much room to push to a nine by week four. Uh, that type of athlete, maybe I'm going to do bigger jump RPEs where uh, it might be six, seven, eight, nine versus an athlete I know who is a bit more accountable to RPE. Um, maybe they're going to be, they can, they can do well within a structure that's more half RPE jumps because they're actually going to be accountable to those small jumps each week and they're not going to go crazy on week four. And so the, the, the stress is almost equal. Like if you add like the average of six, seven, eight, nine to uh, six and a half, seven, seven and a half and eight, like if you add those all up and divide it by four, it's about the same stress yeah. level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just how does it, it almost comes down more to how the athlete is going to actually do the training, if that makes sense. I'm not, that's not the right word, but you, you could yeah. give an you could give four athletes the same program and all of them are going to do it slightly different. So at a certain point, it's, it's about the coach then organizing it to how the athlete is actually implementing the program to an extent. Now, as a coach, you should be trying to get them to implement it how you want to, but you're just going to find people that fall into these different, different categories. And I don't think you should always punish someone who really likes to push at week four of the block, because maybe that's really motivating for them to know that they get to do that versus if you always try and hold them back, it's going to start to make training not as fun for them. Yeah. I definitely think personality type has a lot to do with, um, and you, have, you know, ironically, that's like your least favorite, your least viewed videos, literally psychology. But I think that's the most important part of coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, is you're coaching people's like, like we're all like emotional and, um, I like Eric, uh, knows that like myself, like I tend to overshoot. So what does he never really programs in at eight, because that kind of turns into, into at nine more often than, than not. Um, and, uh, then some of my athletes, it's just like, it's like, I'm just trying to get them to like actually load the bar because, you know, for powerlifting, like you do need to go heavy. You do need to practice that, that, that skill. And you do need to be good at going, you know, at lifting heavy weights and, you know, somebody's having a harder time with that. I'm probably going to bring up more floors at, at, at nine out of the block. And I thought what you said too, about just saying like, look, like it's, we're mostly around that seven to eight average intensity throughout the block. Just how do we self-organize that based off of, you know, what allows the lifter to make the best progress and also just makes them more excited to train because that's really important. Something that I've kind of been thinking a lot more is um, I think optimal training in most cases like it has to be enjoyable for for the, the lifters and they're actually going to be more body and they're going to be trying really hard you know they're going to be like okay i have to hit like my macros and my sleep because i'm excited to hit my my session tomorrow i have a big session next week's um that tends to be something that like i really do do pay attention to and something i've been doing a little bit more more often with my clients is asking for their input on like if they're enjoying like the like the training or not or like what they might like to, to, to do, because I have found that one that makes them feel like they're actually part of the process. And so just like coaches, like on the ivory tower, telling me what, what to do as, as an athlete. And I was just like, and even if I don't like what I'm doing, it's like, well, I'm hiring a coach. Um, he's, he knows, he knows best. Whereas if, you know, the, the athlete has some input, they want to try a certain variation or whatever. Now, obviously if they don't think that's a good idea, I'll tell them, but ultimately I, I do let my, I guess like my more intermediate athletes, um, manage their their own training to some to some extent or have a lot more say in what goes on the paper yeah and that's the art of coaching because at the same time i'm a dick like i have i tell a lot of my athletes no very strongly no do not do this or i get on to them 
but it, it's understanding like why I would do that and when I would do that. I, I'm going to do that when I think it is incredibly vital because we know what they need to do and they know what they need to do versus there's other times that you're learning and you're trying to learn how you need to basically uh, write the program for them to one, create enjoyability, but also create a system that is how they're going to implement it correctly. So they're, they're, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a hard thing to even like teach a coach to do. It's kind of just one of those things that you learn from experience. You, you start to learn the times that you need to put your foot down and you start to learn the times that you want to be, uh, allow the athlete to more have, uh, have more input, um, to be able to increase that enjoyability, motivation, and kind of adherence. Yeah. It also kind of comes out of like understanding too, like, you know, like your, your athletes are there to get results. And, you know, usually it's just not saying like, look, I really do think this is what was best for you. And, you know, what we, what you're saying right now probably is going to lead to the best, best results because, um, I think plus to like, if you're making progress, like training is more fun, <laughs> regardless of like, if you're like, Oh, I want to do this, but if you're not going anywhere, like you're not really getting stronger, you're not really getting those results that, that you want. It's not as much fun. Um, and I guess want to say like, it's one thing that I've kind of found with controlling my own rate of progression is I've kind of found about like, what's a good amount of weight for myself to add per week where I know, of, okay, this isn't so much that I'm overwhelming my adaptive capabilities. Um, you know, and then as soon as I start to feel like, okay, like I actually added, like, for example, I usually add 10 keys to my dead, to my deadlift every single single week. And I found that, okay, like usually if I did that, the right around week two or, or week three, it's like the same RPE as last week. And then that's when I know that I can, can push. And I think it's different for every single lifter and it does have a lot to do with like where is your max you know like i deadlift 700 pounds so i can have a bigger jump because of the percentage but for myself i found it's really helpful for my lifters to kind of like or i give them like a general like guideline of like you know, add like 10 pounds for squat and deadlift and then five pounds to your bench press per week um and if what we're doing is working at the stimulus is right for you you should eventually reach this point where you see things don't feel any harder when you're adding that weight in so, some week regardless that you actually start, you know, light enough. Um, and then we can push things harder and maybe you could add like an extra, you know, instead of 10 pounds, maybe it's 15 pounds or something like, like that. And what you're describing, actually the post I made today about my lifter, Nicholas, who just competed at nationals is what you're describing is having to learn what your progression rate is off of like, let's say estimated one RM weekly, because a five RPE on week one, whatever weight you do there could be vastly different from what is a five RPE on week four or five. And so that's why like, it won't be even percentage jumps. Like you, you, an RPE should be about 3%, but you might be jumping four and a half percent because your progression rate is a, is a one and a half percent strength gain a week. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, like my lifter, Nicholas, we do a very big progression from week one to four on his squat in particular, because honestly what he could squat like for like a five RPE on week four would be like an eight to nine RPE on week one. It's the most extreme I've seen. He wow. jumped, he makes like 15, he, he squats 672 pounds, but he makes about 35 to 40 pound jumps each week. And that's the right progression rate for him. And, and actually how we had to peak him in the nationals. And I hated it. It was, it drove me crazy is we've lined up his week four primary squat day with the day of the meet. And we had to let these singles not be very good weeks one, two, and three, because we knew that he just never is as strong on weeks one, two, and three. And then Every time week four, we see this peak strength that's probably 10 to 15% more than what he is on week one. And sure enough, Nationals went great. Peaked amazing nine for nine is exactly what we wanted, what we kind of expected. But he hit like 640 the week before at like a nine and a half RPE and then squatted 672 on week, uh, or week three and then squatted 672 on week four, exactly like he does every single time. 
And that's kind of learning like how the lifter not only progresses like in the sense of RPE, but also progresses in the sense of what is their estimated one RM weekly that's going to have to change the jumps because a five kilo jump might be the correct based on the RPE. But if they have a significant difference between their week one to week four strength, it might be seven and a half to 10 kilos because an RPE five on week one is not what it is on week four. Do you ever build that um, progression into sort of like, you know, if you're going into a meet, like, uh, like a peak, if you know, it's very, very consistently, if I've done this right towards the, the end of a block, um, you know, if I don't, as long as the RPE isn't too high, they're probably going to adapt X more amount going into the, into the, their meet with maybe like a, an extra three, 3% with the D load. So you're saying like me, like what I did there with the, well, that yeah, is the like, compete? well, just like in general, because like what, what I'm getting at is like, so I, I know, I, I know that, you know, lots of people used to think that peaking is like, oh, we got to like super compensate. You got to beat yourself up really hard. You got to push really hard like that week before. Um, whereas like, I think more so now, like better, like more so that powerlifting as you know, people have gotten, have more time and experience with, with that. Um, it's more so like, you know, about building the adaptation into the meets instead of just testing things before the meet and then hoping that you have a little bit, bit more. Yeah. On, on so meet. I would say the average way I peak most people is let's say again, five week block. They have their normal four weeks. That probably doesn't look any different other than the fact that maybe week four, I'm going to taper off some accessory work. And then I do a really fast pullback week five. That's usually what I do for most people. That's generic though. I would say though, it's very frequent bench that the meet day is lined up with their heaviest day of the block. Um, especially with my higher frequency benchers. Like if, if they like, because if, if, it's really hard to be able to taper and peak a high frequency bench because they rely on those adaptations of benching four or five, six days a week. Um, deadlift. I never do that with, because I think deadlift more than any lift usually requires some type of taper. And a lot of times it gets a lot out of the squat taper. Like a lot of people actually, I think peak on deadlift almost more so because they're pulling their squat back a little bit because squat fatigue masks their deadlift to an extent where deadlift isn't masking squat. And that's why I think a lot of people see such bigger numbers come deadlift time. Um, meet day is because the double pullback of squat and deadlift helps them a lot. Um, I was going to squat for the most part. I don't do what I did with Nick. He's my biggest special case there. Um, and the fact that I literally just had him train like normal into the week of the meet, um, with that, most people I'm going to have them train pretty normal, like their four week block, and then just kind of do a, a strong pullback the week of. And it makes a lot of sense. So more so that, um, I believe you would call it, it's an exponential taper instead of like a step taper or a linear taper. Yes, definitely not a step. I don't do, I do sometimes I do a little bit of step taper, not in the way that most people like, it's more of like not taking away sets, but maybe like if you had a top set of three and then back off of four by five, maybe the back offs go four by five, four by five, four by four, four by three. And it just drops a little bit of the reps as we kind of go into it. I don't do much of that though. Cause honestly, I mean, it, it changes predictability. Like I think too often people are writing peaking blocks that are completely different than the normal training and then expect the same outcome. Well, you wrote peaking block different. You did all of a sudden did all this different tapering stuff versus you have this very predictable result, every single training block for the most part, like let that run out, like just kind of let, let, let that predictability kind of carry you into the meat. Yeah. I, I think people get too concerned about the whole fatigue aspect of it instead of like trying to maximize their, their fitness. And David Wilson had like in his, in his how to write a peaking block is just like give yourself as many opportunities to feel to build confidence in that in that final block. Do like the things that that work, things that, that that you know you know work well, um, and don't change too much from normal training because ideally you should have enough time before you know you do go into a meet where you know oh this produces an adaptation and they and then 
than a result. And then meat day is just about, okay, your lower fatigue. Okay. We think this might be there, but obviously taking what's there on the day, like you would in training anyways, which is one of the biggest reasons why I think that like powerlifting training, like I think you kind of just need to learn how to train with RPE because that's what meat day is. It's Russian roulette with what you have on that day. And you need to be really good at being honest, like about, you know, gauging your RPEs. You're not getting extra points. You're not getting any stronger. If you're saying your RPE, you know, 10 single wasn't eight. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, I think RPE is easier than percentages. Once people, it, 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 it's, on, it's on, it's on the coach on knowing how to coach it because I'll, I'll go back five years ago. I didn't know how to coach RPE. Now I find it so much easier to give people RPE than I do percentages. I still do percentages, but usually I don't do it for the reason that I don't think the lifter can gauge RPE. I do it just to kind of like create some kind of consistent variable, like maybe back off work is percentage based, or maybe a secondary or tertiary days percentage based. Cause I just, I just want to keep that the same. I don't want the fluctuation and auto-regulate. It just depends on the person. But yeah, I honestly, I think RPE is easier for most people. Once they kind of learn how to do it, I think most people, I mean, what I do is simple. I think most people do it nowadays anyways, is just give a range of what you think they should be within like that. And then the range isn't, I actually, I used to do more of the range based off of like a training max. I rarely ever do that now. I'm just looking back at the last time they did a set of three. I'm seeing the progression they did and I'm just basing off of that or I'm basing off the last block. Maybe they did fives and now we're doing fours. Well, if they hit hundred kilos, I'm going to guess that they can do 102 to 105 kilos if we're doing fours now. And I'm just going to base the ranges off of that. Um, it's a very simple thing to do, but it kind of takes away all the guesswork to where the athlete is kind of doing percentages yet at the same time has the autonomy to be able to auto-regulate according to how they feel. Yeah, because like uh, something that I always tell my, my lifters when they're having a hard time buying into it is like, like your 100 max isn't the same every single day. Even if we were using a training max, like it still isn't like as accurate as it could be. And like, you know, basically saying like, look, like this is probably like around like where I think that you can hit, but be prepared to adjust upwards or downwards. Um, like I honestly say like within like 5% even, it just depends upon like circumstances going, going um, into that training. So I guess the um, last topic I wanted to go over was um, how would you, uh, this is sort of somewhat of a selfish question because I have been struggling with this for a long time, but I know lots of lifters. This is the lift that is stubborn. How do you navigate stubborn bench presses? So this can be multiple things. I think, uh, probably the number one thing is, uh, someone just needs to get more jacked. Um, bench press is the most muscle reliant. And so I think a lot of people, um, likely just need to build more muscle when it comes to bench press. If they're, if they hit a plateau, there could be numerous things. It could be technical. It could be programming, but more often than not, at least in my case, it's probably because they just need to build more muscle. Um, number two, it could be technique based, but let's just assume technique is good. Um, programming wise, what I'm usually going to do is I'm going to mess around with average intensity and peak intensity. Um, Bench, unlike squat and deadlift, is pretty safe to kind of, I'll call it, I don't want to say I'm trying to overreach, but kind of push pretty hard. Like people can, people can bench under pretty high fatigue and still maintain a decent level of performance. And so a lot of times when I have someone who's struggling with bench and let's say technique's fine, they've got a lot of muscle, it, they likely need just some higher stress blocks to create adaptations. And in those blocks, they're likely not going to see great peak output. Like we're not going to see that they're getting stronger. Um, what we're going to see is that if they can maintain a base level of strength, yet basically maintain a higher average intensity, like their back offs are a higher percentage, they're doing more straight set work, they're doing higher RPE stuff, and they can still maintain the same strength, that likely means when I then pull back and do more of a top set back off approach and lower average intensity and care more about that peak intensity, 
we're going to see strength all of a sudden shine through. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, let's say someone can bench 200 kilos. If I can continue to have them bench 200 kilos while increasing stress, once I pull back on that stress, they're probably going to bench more than 200 kilos and squat and deadlift, especially deadlift. I would never do that on because you're just going to be it, the, the tipping point on deadlift is way too easy to all of a sudden. Now they just all of a sudden deadlift 20 kilos less because of fatigue squat. Some people can kind of do that, but I usually don't. It's mainly bench. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize how, how much stress they can induce on bench and likely still maintain a, a general level of strength. And then once they pull off of that though, then all of a sudden Boom. You get two blocks where bench looks amazing. And you say, Oh, what we're doing now works. Well, no, what you did before worked. Um, what you so did before I, is what created the adaptations. And now we're just highlighting those adaptations. So I, I, I really like that. So essentially if you were to structure that, would you maybe have like one block be like that, like intentionally, and then, you know, you're going to, and then you can kind of carry them through for like the next like block or something. Like, like I'll that. usually at least do two or three blocks. One block usually okay. isn't enough. I'm going to well, usually do in my two case. I've been doing a lot of volume, like to where I'm just really sore and whatnot. And uh, we've been doing that for a while. And uh, like my, my limiting factor of bench press has always kind of been like, can I handle the volume and like not get like a pectoral tendon issue or it was like right here. I've had historical issues with, with it. And, um, you know, I've been kind of stubborn with that, but we, like Eric and I have been progressively like increasing my volume and my strength really hasn't gone down. And that's actually what we're doing right now is we're pulling back <laughs> because mm -hmm. this last whole entire block was basically to destroy my, uh, my, my upper body. It's gotten bigger too. Um, and that has cer certainly helped. Um, when you're using like a more of a, like when you're trying to get them bigger, like for the upper body, do you use the comp bench more so as a tool with that, or would you pull back to more accessory bodybuilding bro work? Depends on the lifter. Um, it, yeah, just completely depends on the lifter. Like if you have a super high arch, low range of motion bench, you're probably not going to build much muscle tissue increasing volume there. It's just, it, it's, it's not going to change that much. You're going to need to do more accessory based work. Um, so yeah, just completely depends on the lifter. Um, lifters who have a longer range of motion, um, likely get a little bit more from benching, but like, I'm gonna use myself. I bench twice a week, like six sets. And I do a lot of accessory work. If you give me more bench, it doesn't help my bench. I actually do better doing more accessory work because bench is extremely fatiguing for me. Unlike a lot of people, like I cannot bench three days a week. Every single time I bench three days a week, I immediately get hurt. Um, so it's just dependent on the person, but and what you said too, you can do one of two ways of the increase in the stress. You could go the volume approach, which could suffice to also help in the sense of creating stress, um, and muscle tissue, or you can do the intensity approach. I mean, there's a lot of times, like, I'm sure you have blocks that like, you know, that this works really well for like maximizing my strength. And like, maybe it's a certain rep range, but not high volume. I might take that exact block and create more stress within it so that when I pull off that block and we can rerun the same one with lower average intensities, but higher peak intensities, you're going to be better. Or it could be the option like you're doing is drive volume up. And then once we pull back that volume, hopefully, and go to like lower volume work, um, we're going to see that strength come out. So there, you can, you can use intensity and or volume simultaneously or separate to create that same stress while trying to maintain that, kind of that same average baseline strength. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that, that a lot. Um, I guess like, I, I guess if you've been doing like, it's like, I like, for, like I've been plateaued on bench for like over a year. Like I've been around that 331 to 342 range on bench. Um, and I have done like three times a week and kind of like you, like Eric and I have found like a consistent trend if I do more than two times a week of like bench pressing is I'm like you too. Like I just get more fatigue from like a connective tissue standpoint, like I could do like more musculature work 
but I just can't tolerate it. Um, I guess determining like that frequency then for, for bench press, like when is more better and when is, is it, is it like, because I, I obviously like my, my biggest, biggest question with this is it's 10 to 20 sets is like the recommended, you know, body part average. Um, if we're talking about like bench press and like filling up that, that spot, do you find that like that doesn't apply to bench press? It might need like more upwards of like 30 sets to like get stronger. That's completely dependent on the person and likely correlates with distance traveled. Um, I've got some people who do 30 plus sets a week. Now, here, here's where I have a general framework of increasing frequency. Um, this is just my system. This is not like a set in stone rule. I typically don't like to do more than five or six sets of bench press in a singular day. I, I just generally think, at least in my system, if I do much more than that, there's just too much diminishing returns. So if I get to the point where like I have days where like, I don't have any more sets I can add. Like this is getting like, like I, I can only stress this day so much. That's where I'm going to look to start distributing those sets out over more days, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think about increasing frequency is like, if I, I can only pack so much into a certain day before I'm going to have to distribute it to other days to actually have better returns versus diminishing returns. That also goes in line with, with the research on like session volume and like what's actually like adaptive and what's probably just more damaging and you're just spending a little bit more time just just recovering versus adapting so that makes a lot of sense to me um all right steve well i think that's really everything i i uh i, I had for, for you i want to thank you a lot for for coming on and just kind of just talking about some you know general topics i think a lot of people people have questions about uh, i certainly learned a lot um i guess you know people can, can you know want to find you learn more about you i know that you are uh you're not accepting clients because you are the, you are always booked, uh, but where can people find you? So PRs underscore performance on Instagram, PRs performance on YouTube. I put, oh, I haven't been very good about putting out YouTube um, lately just because of being busy, but pretty much everything I want out there is out there. I put it all out there for free because I can only coach so many people. So, uh, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I really like it doing these because obviously if people listen to two white lights, we just talk about like the sports aspect of powerlifting and mainly drama and try and stir up beef because that's what people uh, that like want to listen to half the time. Um, but I, I like talking about this kind of stuff even more because this is, this is the stuff I nerd out on. So I appreciate yeah, no, you having me on me, and let me do me that. Too. Like my, my friend Brendan and I, like we literally have calls. We just talk to each other about just, powerlifting and it's it, it's a lot it's a lot of fun and uh i think that this is really the most important thing for most i think for really just pushing the sport forward with better outcomes is having more podcasts with coaches who are actually in the, the, the trenches like having that practical you know actually practicing things and um putting out information about like what they've observed worked for people or just from general frameworks that they they use because Unfortunately, people want to cure cancer more than they want to see the bench presses go up um, when it comes to research, which is understandable. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, Steve. Well, thank you so much. I'll put all of your information in the show notes. And I want to thank everybody for watching. I'll talk to you guys on the next episode.